I mean, who could say something bad about Bill Gates? He's out there helping. He's got his philanthropy. He's just like the Rockefeller Foundation, but he's bigger, better, and he's everywhere all at once. You know, he's he's in with the vaccines. He's got the decade of the Fauci. Uh, I'm sorry, I almost said the decade of the Fauci. Bill Gates and Tony Fauci did a deal in 2010, according to the Gates Foundation website, where uh, they would have the decade of the vaccine and look at their crescendo. Look at that. Magically, 2020, they pair up again 10 years later. Uh, it's accidental, though, because of a world crisis. Uh, I get, a, I don't know. I get a little incredulous. I'm like, oh, you know, he he puts on like everybody believes what Bill Bill Gates says. And it's like, how can you show people? How can you show people what Bill Gates is doing? Like, it's too much to even say. We don't have the ability as individuals to communicate like that. I guess we're all just left wanting until we, we learn how to express ourselves. I mean, who in this room could say something credible about Bill Gates and his ability to persuade people from his little empire, wherever he's living these days? Uh, I'll speak up there, Rich, if you want me to. Hey, hey, how's it going, Rich? Hey, it's not the same James Corbett in the video because you're wearing something different. So this is live, <laughs> live in person, James Corbett. How are you doing, James? I am doing very well, thank you. And uh, yes, thank you for pointing out my severe underdressed wardrobe. Uh, control room, pull up image search of J.R.R. Tolkien and or C.S. Lewis, because I swear to God, if you put a pipe in your mouth and walked into a room with either of them, you would blend in completely, Rich. It would be great. Um, but on a more serious note, yeah. Uh, Bill Gates uh, it, it, attempting to articulate everything that he is involved in is a monumental, Herculean task. It is incredible because, I, as I hope people know by now, yes, I did do a two-hour documentary on Bill Gates earlier this year. Me and Brock, literally two of us, working flat out for one month, did a two-hour documentary. I, I still cannot believe we did that, but we did it. And still only covered a fraction of what we could have covered in a documentary like that. That could be a 10 hour documentary and you probably so you're saying there's more possibly yeah, if exactly. he continues well, to be a frontline type of guy, there might be more. That's cool. Yes. What gave uh, you the cojones to think that you could take on a non-elected leader like that? Just you and Brock and like pen and paper metaphorically, what made you think you could do something like that? Cause it is super useful. It's the thing we can all hand around. That is uh it's uh, it's uh, it's I want to say unassailable. It's unassailably assembled insofar as like, look at the references, what James is saying there. It's not made up. And that's something we can all hand around. And it's got great handles. So what made you think you could do it, man? Were you public schooled? Uh, well, look, yeah, unfortunately, I, I was public schooled. But hey, it worked out for me. Um, it, you know, it's a good point because uh, I certainly don't have any formal training in any of this. Everything that I know about how to produce a documentary like that has been 100% self-taught uh, over the years. And I guess, I suppose, my... <laughs> Thank you, Control. Yes. Uh, I love that. Yeah. Look, look at that. And then look at Rich. Come on. Do you see the difference? I don't. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, so but uh, as I was saying, everything that I have uh, learned over the years has been self-taught. Other than I suppose my English degree has given me some facility with the English tongue, and so perhaps I'm able to articulate myself. But other than that, I mean, everything has been uh, a process of learning. And as you know, because Rich, I know you've been listening to me since basically the beginning, uh, 13 years ago, and obviously my audio and video production has definitely improved over the years to the point where it's now passable. Uh, I am not, I don't have a setup like yours. I mean, your setup is incredible. Um, I don't have that. I am way too busy <laughs> actually doing <laughs> all my research and stuff, but I should, I should probably have a little desk like that because it would make it more credible in the eyes of some. And I get that, you know, it's, I, I'm not knocking that. It's just, uh, but then when it comes to something like, like this, where we see what's happening this year and you see Bill Gates, everywhere behind every, every tone, stone you want to uh, turn over this year, Bill Gates is there. And I saw that developing and I knew this had to be articulated. And I'm not the type of person to just sit there and wait or ask someone else, can you do this? No, I, if I see that need and I know that I can do something to put myself in it, I do it. And so that's what I did. It was a incredible amount of work, but somehow or other we pulled it off. And I am delighted to announce, I just, I mean, I continue to get feedback. I literally just got an email yesterday from some guy here in Japan, actually, 
who uh, was passing it around to, to some of the people in his life who are totally 100% normies on board with the agenda. They, they'd never question anything. And he said that documentary has turned several people into skeptics of Bill Gates. So it is having some effect. And uh, we cannot take for granted how long our ability to do this online in this form and reach people on this wide a scale will last. So we're just trying to make the most of it. I remember the first time I heard Bill Gates was involved with all this. And it was like, it wasn't even the end of January and it was Benny Wills and he was doing a words, words, words. And he said, Oh, by the way, there was a, a war game of this whole thing. And the big Bill Gates was involved. And I was incredulous. I was like, Benny, you can't be sloppy. Let me look that up. I got to help you out here. And I was like, Oh my goodness. And then I watched the whole event 201 thing. I was like, oh, it's worse than I thought. And, um, you know, he'd been warning the world for years, but he didn't help people with the PPE or getting anything started or, you know, they, they totally, it seems, I don't want to make accusations, but it seems like they were taking advantage of a, a pending crisis that they really could have helped to prevent. And then if you look into the deeper origins of what is the thing that's out there, there's a lot of Fauci Gates fingerprints over the whole process. So I know it sounds cliche, like he's a Bond bad guy type of thing going on, but he does have his fingers in a lot of pies, man. And you did an excellent job, you and Brock, of covering and illustrating that, that whole mosaic in those four parts. Yeah. And I'm always careful to say, I don't think that Bill Gates is the center of the web and he controls everything, but he's, he's just a focal point and clearly a funding device for so many different things that are going on. And from there, you can start to branch out and find out what was Fauci and the, uh, uh, the National Institute for Infectious uh, Diseases doing with their gain of function research. And what were they doing in Wuhan? And wasn't that illegal? Wasn't that technically illegal when they were actually doing that back in 2014, 15? And then you start to branch out into Charles Lieber and all these like bioelectronics and uh, uh, bacterial phages that they're weaponizing and to, in order to infect you with solutions and and the, uh, not not just the mRNA vaccines, but the next 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 step of piezoelectronics and quantum dot tie twos and nanowire self assembling nano assemblies that they're going to start injecting people with. You start learning about this stuff and yeah, so Bill Gates is just a, a convenient focal point from which we can start to understand these other agendas that are at play right now. So let's move away from Bill Gates for a second and just talk about the other aspect he mentioned, which was Bitcoin. And I know you've done some work demonstrating the, the bank for international settlements. They got this new central bank cryptocurrency coming out. And I always ask the question, what's the history and evolution behind this organization that has such a big influence over everything? And I, I remember uh, the Telmarsh Act and Nazis and, you know, it's, it's not a good auspicious, like it's not a good humble origin uh, for what they're doing. And there's a long continuity. And that's why I keep arguing. It's like, for those who think it's accidental, there's thousands and thousands of pages that could really help you improve your perspective. And you don't need to read all that, but you do need to read something to get outside that box. Yes, you do. And on that note, um, I'm sure you have it as well. It is the tower of Basil, um, by, uh, Adam Libor. I don't uh, have that. I'm going you to, don't? though. not yet. Oh, okay. Well, yes, you should. It is the the only single volume work like this in recent years that I know of on the BIS. Its history, its origins, where it came from, how it was constructed. Uh, it's very good. There's a lot of good info in here. It's well documented. So definitely a good research tool if you're interested in the Bank for International Settlements. Having said that, Adam Libor is obviously mainstream um, so I'm sure there is a lot to the story that is not included in here, but this is at least a good part, starting point for people who are interested. He's but actually, I was going to turn it around on you and ask, what, do you know any books or resources that you would recommend on BIS? Um, the resources, let me pull up my history blueprint here for a second and see if I do have any resources on BIS that are point outable. I don't know of any books. That's why I was really interested in what you had bank for inter national settlements and that is going to bring up this bad guy right here uh bis was formed in 1930 the main actors were bank of england montague norman whose name's in tragedy and hope by the way it's one of the omitted pages pages over the years that was one of the pages and his german counterpart helmar horace greeley schacht uh later adolf hitler's finance minister the bank was originally intended to facilitate reparation payments imposed on Germany during the Treaty of Versailles. And um, that's part of the truth. Like that was part of what the truth was back at the day uh, when I put that in. Hey, um, do you want yeah. do you want me to give you an excuse uh, exclusive, not an exclusive, an exclusive here for your Grand Theft World audience? Absolutely. 
something that I haven't said yet on air. Uh, Of course, you know, World War One conspiracy that I did uh, that is available at CorbettReport.com slash WWI. And as you may remember, at the end of part three of the World War One conspiracy, at the conclusion of that documentary, it did end with a to be continued, dot, dot, dot. Well, what does that mean? What could James possibly be working on? Well, that shelf that I just pulled this from is from the shelf of work uh, books that I'm consulting for my next work, which includes this book, which uh, I, I you recommended to me, yeah. Selling War. Um, yeah. You recommended this one, right? Yes, I did. I and, think uh... you did. <laughs> I would say, do you have this one for that? Whatever the topic area is, it's, uh, I'm sorry. Let me put it under the camera here. It's the double cross system. And this is uh, JC Masterman who ran MI6. Let me do it like this. I was not prepared. Look at me doing it live, guys. Yep. Doing it live. There we go. Uh, In here is where they talk about, so this is the guy who ran MI6 during world war ii and in that book he talks uh, very clearly that they knew that pearl harbor was going to be attacked it was their spies gathering the information on it so if you're looking at uh the british propaganda campaigns you have the irregulars book right uh don't nope all right so i can make you a short list because i read yes. 40 40 books on what seems to be that topic mm-hmm. and i have them all here but i don't have them i was gonna all say i don't here. have the double cross system but uh, that was obviously a part of double standards uh yes. the rudolph hell's cover-up yeah um by Lynn Picknick, Clive Prince, and uh, Stephen Pryor, who also wrote. I love it when he goes to the books. Another one which you have recommended in the past, yes. Friendly Fire. Yeah. Uh, that, very, that's very excellent. good book. Lots of key details in here. Um, and, uh, you know, some other books along these lines that you might recognize. Oof, they're falling all over now. Uh, obviously, yes. Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, Antony Sudden. Um, Conjuring Hitler. Yes. Uh, Preparata. That's it. That's his name. Uh, Lying about Hitler. Uh, Richard J. Evans. Uh, the Anglo-American establishment, obviously. Right on. Um, so you might get a sense of what I'm working on from that, but uh, I won't. I won't name it yet. But you'll you'll get it. Um, but. Uh, See, that was my plan for 2020 until 2020 intervened and kind of derailed that plan. So hopefully I'll have some chance to work on it in 2021. I got Guido Preparata here as one of the books that I, because uh, he did the afterword for the Sean Stone book that I did the uh, the forward for. Right. He, he's an astute observer. So yep. I don't have that book. It's been in my cart for some time. I don't think oh, I have the Conjuring. Really definitely you need that one. That's absolutely essential. Well, I'm going to make a short list of the other books that I think tie into that topic. That way you have broad selection and you can pick I the best. I will greatly appreciate that. And in fact, that's why I was interested in talking to you today about the subject of books. Because I thought to myself, self, I know a lot of people, but who do I know that has a genuinely impressive collection of physical books? And I racked my brain and you were absolutely the top of that list. You are always pulling out not only books referencing, you know, what you're talking about, but specifically like old books, books out of print, you know, rarities, all sorts of stuff that most people don't have access to. Uh, I want to get pick your brain a little bit about book, book reading and the the value of physical books. Uh, Here's an example. I was watching a recent Grand Theft World where you mentioned one of my reports. Uh, I think it was when I was talking to Pete Quinones. At any rate, um, you uh, cut to your room there and you pulled out Superclass by David Rothkopf, which I had mentioned, and you went through some of the passages of it, which is great. Awesome. Uh, that's a book more people should probably know about, and I'm glad you you did that. Um, but it just, you know, it occurred to me, wow, this guy has the reference for everything and he's got it all in his library. So let's, let's get some details there. Uh, let's talk about your library a little bit. How many books would you estimate that you have? I have a lot less. I have a lot fewer books than when I moved into this house. And now that we have to move again soon, I'm going to be, yeah, trying to whittle it down. But I, I have mainly books because before, before I started learning for myself, I didn't have a whole lot of books. I didn't need a lot of books. I thought I had been programmed to know everything. I had a college degree. I'm being successful. I read Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I'm good. I watch whatever and I learn. But then I started to encounter things that uh, weren't on my terrain. 
uh, weren't on my map, but they were definitely part of the terrain. And I started looking into, you know, trying to use the internet and I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Cause I'm like, what's the sources? Nobody was doing a good job of presenting where the source material comes from. And so I was having trouble integrating that, which exists that there is information about it on the internet, but I didn't really trust it. So I said, if I start getting older books pre-internet, and if I first, you know, if I get the first editions of these books, it's not even like they changed it in a reprint, then I could start to gain some traction. And there are, uh, I mean, in this room, there's, uh, this is the middle size room. So there's another bigger room that has books. There's this room. And then there's the books in my office, which is a much more condensed and potent collection. But the ones in here are basically proof of the Anglo-American establishment over the past 120 years. Uh, the history of their behavioral psychology development and mind control experiments and CIA and MI6 and foreign policy and uh, United States Senate, uh, let's see, foreign relations of the United States during critical times in American history. The Colonel House paper is up here uh, by Charles Seymour that we used in the World War I series because we were talking about, did these guys know maybe that stuff was going to happen? Did they did they make uh, you know the most out of that crisis maybe by scheduling it? and? <laughs> Sure enough, you got to read their papers. I also have Lord Gray's papers up there right next to Colonel House because they were the ones hanging out. And, you know, if you just cross check, it's like, here it is. Um, and then uh, a whole bunch of books here on the uh, the corruption of the education system. And like the it's not just like John Taylor Gatto. Those books go all the way back into the 1920s, specifically in the 20s. People thought that maybe the British had tricked us into World War One. They were raising questions about Rhodes Scholars in America. Um, these sort of things. And I, uh, this comes from a book on the Pilgrim Society. I was really surprised that this was in here. I'm like, they're admitting to people were catching on uh, to their angle of trying to get, get America back into the British Empire. So let me see if I have that page handy. There was a couple of them in here. Oh, this part's awesome. This is, this is worth waiting for for a second. Let me get this focused up. Can we get it in focus? Yeah, there we go. This is a footnote, by the way. This is a footnote on page 75 of the book Pilgrim Society and Public Democracy uh, Diplomacy, which was recommended to me by my good friend Kevin Cole. He said this is a must-read. Footnote, footnote number 58. In December 1895, shortly after Grover Cleveland's message to the United States Congress regarding the Venezuelan border crisis, Conan Doyle had written a letter to the London Times in which he said he wanted to see, quote, an Anglo-American society started in London with branches all over the empire for the purpose of promoting good feelings, smoothing over friction, laying literature before the public, which will show them how strong the arguments are in favor of an Anglo-American alliance. And there's a whole bunch of footnotes around that. Uh, in addition to joining the Pilgrim Society, Conan Doyle was a member of both the Anglo-American League and the Atlantic Union. And then it goes through a bunch of references for that. That's uh, also listed in the Gray Papers, right? Lord Gray that we were just talking about. Uh, his desire for Anglo-American friendship was also sometimes manifest in his fiction writing. For example, in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Noble Bachelor, when Holmes admits that he, quote, was one of those who believe the folly of a, monarch, of, of a monarch and the blundering of a minister in foregone years will not prevent our children from someday being uh, citizens in the same worldwide country under a flag which shall be a quartering of the Union Jack with the Stars and Stripes. Published in 1892, the story involves a marriage between the, an American woman and a British lord, kind of like Prince Harry's wedding that happened recently. So they're looking to how do we ameliorate the British Empire with the American uh, colonists who became free? Uh, Holmes' quote is demonstrative of his desires for some sort of Anglo-Saxon union that were held by people like William T. Steed, Stead, and Cecil Rhodes. And then there's references for where that comes from. So I just thought, given your knowledge of William T. Stead and Cecil Rhodes, James, that you would find that passage in particular interesting. Now, the part I wanted to get to was where he's talking about, uh, or where they're talking about in this book about there was a sentiment of an anti-Anglo establishment. Let me see if I can find that. Oh, it's right here. Let me cut back to this for you guys. Importantly, however, both groups 
these uh, Wilsonian Democrats and these uh, irreconcilable Republicans, as they called them. Importantly, however, both these both groups deployed anti-British arguments and criticism of the treaty and questioned whether the United States should so closely ally itself with the imperialistic British. Some congressional critics like Tennessee's John K. Shields even perceived an attempt by pro-British Americans, including those who had participated in the Rhodes scholarships, to forge a British-American union. This would not be the last time in the 1920s that expression was given about uh, given to fears about Anglo-American elites attempting to subvert the United States' independence. So that's one of the examples, but I was interested in as early as the 1920s, there are people figuring out, wait, why are we getting so close with our former enemy, Britain? And uh, from that aspect going forward, it's like if you break into a chronological study of how this unfolded over time, it does. It starts at the American Revolution, and you have to understand who the British Empire was, is, who the East India Company was, what their trade was, why they dumped the tea. And then you got to move forward with all the other things you need. And so I just kept finding questions and finding books and what's the earliest copy or somebody would mention it in a footnote and I'd have 10 books I have to get. And that went on from like 2003 until like 2010 before I started really outputting. It was 2009 as the peace revolutions when I started outputting it. So it was a, I read out of necessity, not because I had a lust for reading, I just had a lust for knowledge and, and, and a passion for knowing what the truth is, because obviously it is available, but no one's kind of read it and amalgamated it and organized it and presented it uh, in the way that I was coming to understand it. And that's where I saw, like, I don't want to be in front of a camera or a microphone. I'm a real introspective, introverted type of person. It's a real challenge for me to do on a daily basis. And I exercise that. Uh, I trigger that complexity because I know I become a better person when I'm able to step up and be those things that I want to be. So, um, I was building up so much knowledge about it and wanting to communicate it before I forgot it that led me uh, to the necessity of media production. You know, that that is an interesting point because I have noticed your recall on a lot of things is really impressive, um, specific names and dates and details. And I assume at least part of that is your dedication to the literacy of knowing these books and reading them and, and making notes. I mean, tell us, walk us through your system for how you internalize and digest this this data. All right. So uh, the first thing I did when I I got this uh, Klaus Schwab book, first thing I did was I went to the index and I was like, what's what's covered in this book? So the first thing I do is not read table of contents. I don't read chapter one. I don't read all that stuff at the beginning. I go to the index because anything substantial is usually talked about in the index. And you know what happened, James? There's no index in this book, which tells me they don't want me to word search in this book. And they definitely have the ability to bring me an index. So then I went to what is the last appendix in the book? And it's all about the internalization of technology. So let me just show you. I'll show you real quick. I read it last week, but just for your benefit, it's like implantable technologies this is like <laughs> so my first you know it's like uh the good parts the bad <laughs> sorry parts. just a side note i just read that appendix deep shift i yeah. slightly read that wrong when i read that on <laughs> yeah we are in some deep shift with this so uh yeah uh so my process for reading a book that's, a, that's an excellent question so first i have a need for almost every book i've ever ordered and I started out at like Barnes and Noble and I'm like, what do they have to offer that's off the beaten path? And there's like nothing. So then I started going to American Book Exchange, which is a great place to get used books. And then Amazon came along later and it's easier sometimes, but not necessarily. If you want to find the good books, you go to American Book Exchange because they, they're a serious business. It's been in business for a long time. So I would start getting tons and tons. I don't need used. I just, I mark my books up. If I buy first edition copy, whatever, it, I need to make it useful. So I'm going to go through that book and harvest the nuggets out of it, whether it's Colonel House or any of these other books that are probably really, really valuable. I've marked them up now and makes them more valuable, in my opinion, because now they're useful. I can find that data. I know where it's at. I know what's in the book. I know I marked it. I remember what part of the page it's on. And then uh, as I go through, I use a highlighter. I got a highlighter and it's got little tabs on it. These are really hard to get. So I'm going to tease you with this. But as you see, there's one tab left in this one. That's really convenient. And I can tear through huge Neil Ferguson books on the Rothschilds or, you know, so I have a method. And then going through um, a book, I've marked it up. I know what's in there. And then I would start to assemble ideas on index cards. 
like these. And then you get stacks of index cards. You play solitaire with yourself. You're like, this goes here, this goes here. And then you go through each stack and you organize them. And then you're able to make media and you make that information. All that work is useful. So I overlearn as a natural thing. And I learned how to leverage my overlearning to pay it forward to others because I don't think everyone has the time, willingness, or necessarily the aptitude to go through all this literature to come out and communicate with people. And being that I lost a multi-million dollar career. I, I, I sacrificed it through doing actions that I take responsibility for and blowing the whistle. But like that, I wanted that career at the time. And through that process of representing myself, I discovered the law firm I'm up against was created by JP Morgan to do hostile takeovers. And they devented the United States government and Iran-Contra and BCCI. What is going on here? And then I started to learn a little bit more about the world through that process. It's been very enriching. Excellent. Yeah. Um, overlearning. That's a good concept because I'll tell you a little bit about my own process, which I don't recommend. <laughs> it kind it works for me, but I don't recommend it because it is not an efficient process. But when I'm going through these books, I am, I got the highlighter and I'm obviously making notes of all the things that I think are interesting that I could use. Oh, that's an interesting tidbit there. And then I'll move on to the next book, move on to the next book. And then when it comes to time to work on assembling this into the documentary, I'm going to go back through all the books, pick out all the highlights, uh, physically type them out from the book into my notes on my computer as a way of internalizing so that I know these quotes and I know what they're saying. I know them inside out. Then sorting them out into subject matters, dates, places, people, events, whatever. And then I can start to structure that into, okay, so what's my narrative here? How am I going to tell this story and what comes first and what comes next? And then I can say, okay, I got a quote for this. I got a quote for this. I got this piece over here. And that's how it's going to, but I mean, that's all, that's work on top of work, on top of work, on top of work. If I had an efficient system, I'm sure I could do that in, a, in one or two steps, but actually the doing it and doing it again and looking over it again actually helps me to internalize the material as I'm working on it. So I think it's the not part efficient, where you, but it works. I, no, but, but it definitely works. And I think the part where you uh, type it out, that's the part where you're really, in, where you're really internalizing it. And, um, now it, it's good to have some insights on how those scripts come together. And then Brock ads picked, cause I've always thought, how does he do this? Or, you know, when they watch all this footage, like how much footage did you have to watch of Bill Gates over the years <laughs> to find those pieces? And, and how are you categorizing it? And I know how like Kevin Cole yeah. and I did it for state of mind, the psychology of control. Like we watched 40 hours of interviews. We transcribed everything in every interview. Yeah. And then we had hotspots. And from those hotspots, we're like, we can puzzle piece it together. So do you find it like a, a scintillating experience, like puzzle piece playing? You know, is it is it work? Yeah, or is it your brain that, doing something natural? Right. No, that might be a good way of putting it. Um, yeah. Like, for example, when I'll uh, like I recorded with you for the World War One conspiracy, recorded a long conversation. And then I would um, I, first of all, I got the transcript of that. Uh, I think someone actually transcribed that one for me, but uh, usually I just will upload it to GooTube so that it auto transcribes. Hey, make use of their technology for my own purposes so that I can get the transcript. So I have it there. I, I can read it, but then I'll, I'll, I'll put it on audio and I'll, I'll have it in the car when I'm driving, whatever, I'll be listening to it. And I'll listen to it a couple of times just to pick out, okay, I definitely need that bit. Okay. That's a good bit. And then I can go through the transcript and sort that out and put, clip those bits out so that I know I'm going to need those later on. And then they work their way into the narrative that way. So again, it's over and over. I, I mean, obviously I'm looking at this over and over with Bill Gates. Yeah. Don't even get me started. I watched dozens and dozens of hours of lectures and interviews and that horrible voice is just ingrained in my ear at this point. But Now share the magic with people, no matter what you, you think, you know something. And that's why you want to make a film or a project or whatever, write a book but you don't know anything until you start doing that project. And it, that, so it's almost like a, a trick. It's like, you think you know enough and then you get into it. You're like, well, I really need to learn some more in order to do this thing and move it forward. How do you consistently crank out that process? Because I think that's one of the most impressive parts. It's not just the the gravamen of facts that you're bringing together and the, the weightiness of what it means. It's like the fact that you do it every couple of days, it seems, man. So how, how's that work for you? <laughs> I wish I had something to impart to you. I wish I could say, oh, this is how, but honestly, it's just who I am. I would be doing this. I, well, I often say I would be doing this research, whether I was doing the podcast or not, but in a sense, maybe I wouldn't because uh, there are many times where I, I'm, I'm aware. Okay. I, I got to put something out. I've got a podcast to do. Uh, I I'm interested in this. Let's do this. And I decide on something and then I start getting into the research and then I put it together 
And it's funny to me that sometimes the most, what feel to me, the most slapdash kind of pod podcasts where I, I wasn't prepared for it and, and I just had to dive into it and immerse myself in it for a week and then come up, pop up and, and put out as podcasts. Those type of podcasts, I'm like, I, I hope I got it all in there. I hope it makes sense. Does that work? And then inevitably, those are the ones that I get the best feedback about. Like, that was great. Like, okay, good. <laughs> that was a success. Yeah. But actually, yes, part of part of knowing a subject is being able to articulate it, being able to put it into a narrative and, and connect the dots and put it in, in a way that you can teach it to other people. That is one way to show that to yourself, even that, you know, a subject and you learn things by having to put it into that form. So yes, I think I'd be looking at these things if I didn't have a podcast, but I wouldn't certainly not in the depth that I do. It is because I have this podcast and I have a responsibility to hundreds of thousands of people who are watching my work. I take that very seriously. I do my level best to try to really synthesize as much material as I can and put it out as best as I can. And it's that motivation actually helps me to do this research, which I would probably be doing on a more surface level if it wasn't for that, that process. So that, that is valuable to me. But, but, but getting back to books, I actually, I want to specifically address digital versus physical um, yeah. because you have an impressive physical library my library physically is not so impressive i have a big digital library but i mean there are dangers to working with digital libraries uh give us your thoughts on digital versus physical i like digital when it's a book i'm not familiar with and i need to word search it to see what topics are in there these sort of things but otherwise i really don't read a whole lot of books online i don't uh i don't have a kindle uh, if you have, give me something to read that it's serious, I'll probably print it out because then I can mark it up and I can instantly, like I'm a very tactile. There's something about tactile learning. And I think that goes away when everything's ubiquitous on the same screen all the time. It's just, it's not as registering in your mind. I also think that as I learn and I, for instance, uh, put something in my history blueprint, the, the, the action of putting those thoughts in there and connect, making those connections, adding the attachments, it's building neurons in my brain. So I would credit a lot of my memory about the content that I'm interacting with, not just taking my reading seriously, or if you have the audio version, read and listen at the same time. That's a, that's a huge step for it, but I don't do that very often. Um, I don't listen to things fast, so I don't push 2x to listen. I just listen at normal speed. And if it's not worth listening at normal speed, like, you know, then I might not do it. Um, electronic books. Um, they are really great to be able to pass to other people. So if there's a bunch of source material, like for instance, uh, I don't have the real book of the Reese Committee hearings. I have a PDF that can be printed out that Charlotte Isserby rescued and saved and these sort of things. Um, there are some documents like that, but anything substantial like, um, you know, the last well and testament of Cecil Rhodes, you can get that on archive.org. I don't know, like, cause uh, you know, it's a PDF, but when you have the actual book and the book version, the version of the book I have was William T. Stead's personal copy. And it's stamped on the inside review of reviews. This was the guy who wrote the last will and testament of Cecil Rhodes. So I'm like, this is the surest thing that's on the market out there. And I have the story of the guy who bought that whole library from a review of reviews once upon a time it's interesting but yeah having the artifacts or even um some of these earlier pre-carol quigley books i have over here porter Sargent, on um education and war and the fact that our schools were being changed to get into a war mentality and that uh, according to this pilgrim society book right here they were changing the attitudes behaviors and beliefs of people in the 1920s to be more pro-british through changing american history books so this ties back into maybe that selling war topic that you opened up with, James, where there's a there's a group who has a superior set of experience to a nascent America who didn't in the 20th century have their own intelligence network. The East India Company's intelligence network, I'm sorry, the British Empire's intelligence network, MI6, like it goes back in history and there's a lot of evidence of how it evolved over time, why it over, evolved over time too. And America got sucked into that. And before you knew it, we were playing in the great game which is another whole great idea. There's a ton of books on that concept and the new great game that they're seeking to play with us right now in this great reset. Um, and I just really feel like it's in getting into the books. Plus books are cool. They're like, they're like the, the albums, like, you know, people obsess over their LP vinyl with the album covers and everything. It's like, if you don't have a copy of the book and you know, the, the cover art, uh, this was done by our graphic artist, Greg Hardesty, by the way, because I thought Sean's cover was lacking. I was like, hey, man, we can make you a cool cover. And I, I conceptualized this and I said to Greg, can we have an American flag with the Union Jack? Because 
that's what the Pilgrim Society, that's what Conan Doyle said. Can we have a flag that has both things on it and unite and take over the world? That's these people's goal. They haven't been um, uh, confronted. People haven't understood the legacy of information because people like us are still in the process of articulating it. Uh, but now I think there's a lot of good reason for people to to wake up and smell the coffee. They, there's something going on. There's a long history behind it. It didn't just happen with this, this pandemic plague situation. Um, and there's going to be a lot more changes really, really quickly because they basically moved their plan 10 years ahead of time. And fortunately for us, I think technologically, we might have been 15 years ahead. So we might still have a buffer even after they do this great reset and the shakeup and the Bitcoin and all this other stuff. But uh, I remain the eternal optimist because I, I learn so much every day that I know I couldn't have been that smart yesterday. And so because there's this unknown and I don't take it as a threat, I take it as an opportunity to learn and outgrow our fears. I can continue to engage in all this work with a, a smile and a plan and the resourcefulness to get her done. Well, let me speak just for a moment on behalf of digital books, yeah. Um, yeah. because I, I do find them useful. And uh, th for example, we're talking World War One conspiracy, and of course, you uh, mentioned the uh, the intimate papers of Colonel uh, Colonel House, uh, which we I think you cited from in your interview, and that I used in in the documentary where um, he's talking, uh, where essentially uh, uh, they're talking about uh, the Lusitania ahead. Yeah, of Yeah, he and Lord Grey, and the yeah. and Lord Grey had just met with the king. Yeah, I think uh, I could find it if you want. It's well, that would be impressive. Why not? Let's see. Let's see. Uh, I, I bring it up because uh, I, of course, do not have the physical copy of it. I, but I was able to find it on archive.org and able to link actually to the scan of that particular page in the hyperlink for the World War One conspiracy, where I can show people where that quote comes from, which is important to me. I know it's not important to a lot of the audience, but the real researchers in the crowd, I think, will appreciate that. And the ability to instantaneously link to a particular page in this extremely old book that most people don't have a physical copy of is extremely, extremely valuable for humanity. Oh, let's see. Uh, do, you remember, do you have a date? Let me see, because I'm in 1911. Uh, it's page right 435 here. of this archive.org edition. London, May 5th, 1915. 1914. Colonel House to the President. Telegram. 1914. 1914. Oh, it could be on the screen one right here. Something's at the end of the book. Freedom of the Seas. We might be getting close to it. 435? 435 right here. There it is. Yeah. Uh, which part is it? Uh, on the morning of May 7th, House and Gray drove out to Kew. Let's see. Is it May 11th? Oh, maybe it is on 435 of your edition. No, well, that see. looks different. But if you tell me... Uh, it's a slightly it different talks, edition. It talks about Lord Kitchener. This is Colonel oh, House. Oh, it's right there. Right there. Yeah, right here. Uh, uh, Colonel House to the President on the uh, other page, 432. On the morning That's of one. May 7th. Oh, right here. Yeah. Let's see. Let's get it squared up. On the morning, May 7th, House and Lord Grey drove out to Kew. Oh, that's interesting, right? Kew. It's, they're talking mm. about Kew Gardens, but that's like Kew yeah. from James Bond. Yeah. We spoke of the probability of an ocean liner being sunk, recorded House, and I told him if this were done, a flame of indignation would sweep across America, which would in itself probably carry us into the war. An hour later, House was with King George in Buckingham Palace. We fell to talking, and strangely enough, the colonel wrote that night of the predictability of the German sinking of a transatlantic liner. He said, suppose they should sink the Lusitania with American passengers on board. That evening, House dined at the American Embassy. Dispatch came in, stating that at two in the afternoon, a German submarine had torpedoed and sunk the Lusitania off the southern coast of Ireland. Many lives had been lost. Now, what's the, what's the uh, providence of this book? these characters uh let's see let's see intimate papers of colonel house behind the political curtain and let me get to the page of copyright because that's what people need to see at home this is where you get the future right there and 1926 is the first edition did it get in focus i'm gonna have to work on that bring it down 1926 first edition who is it? Who is it to? Who's this guy? Someone should look up who this guy is. Anyway, that's the uh, that's the artifact, James, that was used and inspired uh, throughout World War One conspiracy. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and as I say, it's I mean, it's 
it's incredible that not only, I mean, obviously it's great that you have the physical copy of it, but it's incredible that we have the scan of the book that we can digitally hyperlink to. And so we can reproduce that information at will um, all over the planet. That's incredible. And also, and and also this is why I brought up Superclass earlier, um, because you had the physical copy. I don't have a physical copy of it. It is on archive.org. Um, but it's available for borrowing, as a lot of books are. Um, but it's a useful feature. It used to be more useful, but you might have noticed if you use archive.org that now you can only borrow for one hour. You used to be able to borrow for two weeks, I think. But now it's one hour because they're getting massively sued right now. Because how dare you lend out books via your internet library that you can't do that. Naughty, naughty. Archive. They're under attack. They're under yeah. attack right now. There was an Aaron and Melissa Dykes uh, Truth Stream Media on the yeah. uh, Haiti Trust, where yeah. even the physical books are now, you know, being exactly right. I was going to ask you about that if you'd seen that, because yes, they did a great report on that, and uh, yes, this Haiti Haiti Trust came out of nowhere and has these agreements with these libraries that if you want to sign up with us, yes, you can distribute these uh, digital copies to you know anyone who wants one at a time, of course. Um, but if you do so, you cannot physically put that book on your shelf. If it's in our repository, you can't physically loan it out. What? What are you signing up to? So now we're going to trust, trust literally this Haiti trust that came out of nowhere that suddenly has, has the depository of all books. What could possibly go wrong? How could they ever possibly manipulate that data? And then they've got this recent thing, a World Economic Forum uh, exercise called Cyber Polygon. It's about, uh, you know, what happens if you got cut off from the internet for a long period of time? Do you have the information around you that you need to survive? Even if it's still electronic PDF, you can read it. That's cool. But if you can't connect to the internet, a lot of people are fully dependent. They have taken away the libraries left to us by that great philanthropist, Andrew Carnegie, right? So it's like that was there to build the society that they needed for control. And now that they have that, they don't need the people to have widespread knowledge. And they certainly don't need you to have an uncensored internet. So these types of things, you know, times, as uh, Bob Dylan said, they are a changing. Oh, yeah. Um, speaking of which, yeah, if if we really did lose all power, I have a feeling this would probably be become my most valuable, actually, piece of uh, literature, how to grow more vegetables. Um, I think this type of information might be more important than the learning of dates and figures from ancient history, at, at least in, during that kind of event. And also... Uh, <laughs> this one will be particularly valuable. It's uh, the Beatles tune in by Mark Lewis and the uh, thousand page document of the up until 1963, not including 1963. This is just volume one, which is itself two volumes wow. of a three volume projected three volume set, which will probably I hope it has be pictures. <laughs> huh? I hope it has pictures in it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's all text. <laughs> uh, so if you happen to be a, a Beatles, not just fanatic, but ridiculous hyper fanatic, this is the definitely the book for you. Or if and you need I one, can't wait until 2030 when he actually finishes writing it. Yeah, if you need one book to, to be a doorstop and a quarantine friend, that could be it. I think I'd go for Plutarch's Parallel Lives first before I got into that many pages on one band. That I they did make great music. I love the I love the Beatles before you know they broke up and uh, you know the things they did after. That. I have respect. I'm thinking but if I, all the power pages, goes man. off and we don't have access to electronics, I won't be able to listen to them. So I'll just have to read about them. Hey, on your gardening tip, um, I've got a student here in season four. He uh, he has a nonprofit and he's teaching people how to do aquaponics and full cycle gardening. So it's not just growing your own vegetables, but it's learning how to do that in a sustainable way where it's hands off. And so, yeah, it's a good, that's a good first start. Plus, uh, Luke Rudowski has been teaching people those uh, survival skills. So I think, yep. yeah, this is good for everybody's creativity Excellent. and let's share the knowledge and wisdom while we can. And they still let us use question marks and spin these electrons around each, at each other. Okay. Uh, first, I have to say, uh, I listen to every podcast on double speed. I can't stand to listen to them on single speed anymore. When I listen to something on single, uh, regular speed, I'm like, oh, it's, they sound drunk. They're, they're so slow. They're so, oh. I was worrying about it corrupting my ability to listen to people at real speed in situations like this. But if you're telling me I can listen to stuff faster and I can still do as you do, then I'll I'll adopt that technology. I, I think that's how I do what I do. All right, cool. Because <laughs> there's right. no way I could consume as much material as I do. Turbo I've just boost. trained myself to do it. So now I can do it. No problem. Um, 
Secondly, uh, I had to say, oh, regarding the uh, the Arthur Conan Doyle stuff, that's interesting. It's been like 25 years since I read Doyle, but it's interesting to hear those those tidbits. But on that note, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the uh, the irregulars, the the British spies in America. That's after Conan Doyle's irregulars. So there's a continuity. Ah, there's a continuity right. that I think you're going right. to find is really interesting in there. Interesting. Yeah, no, that is interesting. Um. On that note, I was going to ask whether you had read, I uh, I referenced it in my uh, latest podcast on the Great Monetary Reset, uh, what's it called? The Battle of Bread and Woods, John Maynard Keynes, Harry Dexter White, and the Making of a New World Order by Ben Steele. I have not read it, but I know a little bit about Harry Dexter White. Let me bring that character yeah. up over here for just Interesting quick... character, huh? Yeah. Hmm. I, th I think uh, he's a spy or something. Let's see. Oh, um, well, yeah, some uh, form of agent for someone yeah oh yeah 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 as yep. Gatta would say yeah 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 <laughs> yeah uh yep. did he die of he he died of an overdose of digitalis that was my notes on him oh All right, let's bring <laughs> I, don't, I don't know let's see here oh yeah he had a heart attack three days after testifying mm -hmm. okay so mm -hmm. uh columbia university educated he's part of the fellow traveler so he's a communist spy harvard university worked under Morgenthau Sr. and Morgenthau yep. Jr. and the Morgenthau plan came through him. He mm -hmm. was part of the Jacob Golos spy network. He was yep. mentioned during the House uh, Un-American Activities yes. Committee and overseen he was by NKVD. He was Secretary of the Treasury, also either worked for or, uh, you know, university educated or worked at Stanford University of Chicago ties, uh, communist infiltration, and there should be, oh, here's the proof. The Venona Project, which would be the transcript of the wiretaps that proved that McCarthy was overall kind of a dick, but he was right. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other people, but let's see. IMF. Oh, my goodness. Did he? Mm -hmm. oh, oh, my goodness. Bretton Woods. IMF created oh. through the Bretton Woods Agreement, of which Harry Dexter White was the principal American negotiator. And then they had something to do. They were supporting Mao Zedong. Oh, they're supporting uh, Allende in 1973, uh, September 11th. Oh, well, I wouldn't bees. say supporting, but maybe supporting the overthrow. Yeah, supporting the overthrow. They had uh, over, like, you know, they had some influence or oversight. So the job of the model, just real quick, is those those lines don't prove anything. I have mm. to remember all these relationships. Mm. I just put right. like, you know, there's this other communist spy, Laoshin Curry, that was also involved in IMF. And so when you get into some of the people that are part of the history and evolution of these societies, then you start to see, oh, a bunch of these guys were these type of spies, but these guys were caught on these, on these wiretaps, right? Because the Venona transcripts, if anyone doesn't know, these are wiretaps that went on in the 1950s, but they didn't have the computer technology to decrypt and decode them until the 1990s. So then you find out 40 years later that all these people that created this stuff were like uh, Nazis and communists and stuff like that. And they're working all together with the globalists because as Quigley said they often work with the right and left and just control both sides for that that vice right well i i bring up the steel book um because it is i think there's a lot of info in there in Bredenwoods that's interesting um as i said in the podcast he's a bit normie uh, mainstream but and and he's a, a senior fellow of the cfr so clearly you're not getting the full story but anyway there are some good tidbits and you learn to be fair he does mention that white you know in his soviet ties and what have you but doesn't really delve too deeply in what that means that you got these literal Soviet infiltrators at the heart of the creation of the monetary paradigm for the 20th century. Like uh, that seems important. And then, and then you go to Anthony course, Sutton, you go back to who funds those communist Soviets and the Chinese. It's the same yeah, Western it's bankers the same that people. funded our yeah. government and the Nazis. Yep, exactly right. Uh, and of course, Steele doesn't go at all into Keynes, which I know you know, uh, not only the Keynesian economics and all of that, but also, of course, an avowed committed eugenicist, president of the British Eugenics Society for several years, um, did never, never disavowed eugenics, despite what some of his uh, biographers slash apologists say. And actually, um, someone just pointed out in my comment section, AIER, the American Institute for Economic Resources? No, <laughs> I'm not going to get that acronym off the top of my head. AIER.org just had a, uh, a article published talking specifically about Keynes and eugenics and how all those biographers skirt around the issue, but it's actually central to it. Um, but I was also, I was just uh, mentioning that because that, uh, the story that Steele is telling there about White and uh, Keynes and their opposing interests as to what what they envisioned for the future. And Keynes was more for the Bancor. We need an international unit of settlement that'll be this international currency stewarded over by an international organization because at the, the, the end of the British empire, 
uh, he's looking for, well, we don't want to just give everything to America. We don't want to hand the keys to the Americans to run it all. And White, coming from his perspective, although obviously there are many outside influences, wanted to make the dollar equals gold, guys. It's going to be the U.S. dollar that we're going to peg everything to. And obviously White won out on that. But then the, it, that history keeps coming back in 2009 with the PBOC, the People's Bank of China governor, coming out and saying, no, we need... Uh, we need to go back to Keynes and Bancor, this international idea. Oh, I don't know. Why don't we use the IMS special drawing rights? And I mean, there's so much history in there, but I, I think it's actually, it speaks to my interpretation of part of that butting of heads between White and Keynes at Bretton Woods is the uh, round table Anglo-Saxon sort of crew changing, morphing from that original vision of Rhodes instead and the, uh, their clique. Um, but that saw more of a British-centered Anglo-Saxon empire. Like, it's, Britain's going to be the centered towards a more a- American-centered Anglo-Saxon um, vision going for the, you know, Pax Americana that we've seen develop over the last 80 years. Anyway, I think that's an interesting book. I, I know I there's somebody, uh, there's probably somebody in the audience is thinking, well, it's, you know, it's all, it's all Mises and Hayek and these sort of things. And it's like, okay, there's also this to be considered. Even, even Mises was brought to America by the Rockefeller foundation. Mm-hmm. I'm yep. not saying he's a bad guy or anything like that. I'm just saying like, look at who's paying the tab on his hotel and his rent and these sort of things. And, uh, I think Hayek, wasn't he like a personal, uh, tutor for David Rockefeller? Like, so, even was like he? If, he, uh, if he was, I didn't know that. I think I'm pretty sure that Hayek was, mm. uh, was he wasn't a protege of Rockefeller. I thought he was a tutor of it. Whereas uh, Nelson uh, mentored uh, Heinz Kissinger. He picked him mm. up in Ashcan yeah. and uh, yeah. David mentored Zabigyu. Yeah. Apparently David picked Henry out of a lunch line or something along those lines. Uh, and Nelson ended up stewarding him. But uh, at any rate, I'm pretty sure there's an Anglo-American history on uh, right after World War II, they're trying to sort out which Nazis to throw into the fire and which ones to keep. And and Henry came on board. I'll have to find that research for you. And I also might have. I think I interviewed Jeff Steinberg uh, from EIR who wrote Dope Inc. or co-wrote Dope Inc. And he talks about it in that interview as well. So I'm going to dig that up for you. Okay. Uh, I don't want to totally monopolize this whole time. So I just have one more question for you. Um, Are we in a post-literate society? If so, is that good or bad? And what does it mean? Is that like a post-truth world? Well, I, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll define terms. Um, My reading is that, of course, we know literacy broadly developed in the last few centuries because of the explosion of printed matter, because of the printing press that made text widely available. Suddenly, reading was not this, you know, you had to literally be cloistered as a monk or whatever is to, to learn how to be a scribe. Suddenly, you have literacy for the masses, good and bad. There are different aspects to that. But anyway, it happened. So now we live in a society where, generally speaking, most people can read a book, read a newspaper. I mean, do they understand it? Maybe a different question, but at any rate, they can physically read words and understand enough to get by. Um, but the idea of a post-literate society, uh, there's a lot of, actually, there's a lot of really interesting philosophical things that we could say about that in the sign and the signifier and the signified and how text de- detaches us from the reality of the world. And does does imagery actually bring us back to that? Is it more natural for us as human beings to process information visually and in terms of sound and, and tactile sensation rather than t- text on a page? I mean, that is a very artificial thing that clearly doesn't correspond to our natural state, whatever that may be. So uh, uh, the the idea is that we're moving into a post-literate society where we are once again, because of the technology that we now have, before it was, you know, the best way to, to write or to get a thought across to someone on the other side of the world or a hundred years from now would be to write it down on paper so that they can watch it. Well, now we can record these things. This conversation will be being watched by people hundreds of years from years, <laughs> hundreds of years from now, right? Um, so the idea is, are we, are we moving beyond text? We don't need text anymore. And our more natural form of communication is auditory and visual. So we're going back to that in because that's what the technology is allowing. Does that mean that these things are relics of the past? Is that true? Is that good? Is that bad? What do you think? It's a deep question. I think that... Post-literate society is there if we want it. I don't think it's necessary. I think we can have a parallel literate society. I think reading has uh, importance over history, and it's good to know how to read. But I also think that literacy is a form of slavery. 
And so a method of critical thinking is consistently practiced by the reader. And it's also a form of slavery when you're only reading what's prescribed or required for you and not what you're interested in to do your own learning. So it becomes a limiting factor there. True. I take in a lot of information from books, but I don't write necessarily books out of it. I make podcasts and films and I do have book projects and these sort of things. But the primary way is I know it has to be an audio book. I know it has to have a narrative format. And these are other aspects of it's not about just logic and reason and exchanging facts with people. As you've demonstrated, it's about the narrative arc because you can't fight these emotional responses just with facts. You have to kind of get people to unlock their own minds. We can't do it for them. And that's done through traditionally, uh, it was done through uh, rhyme and poetry. And then eventually they wrote it down. And now we're going back to visual and audio and these sort of things. But I also think it's a huge capacity to be able to read and write. And I think a lot of people today don't have the ability. Their kids aren't learning cursive. They're not learning how to read printed or, you know, these sort of things by hand and look, oh, I can't read this. So there are barriers being created that are pushing people away from being literate and having knowledge of that, which exists. Because when you turn the electricity off, all these books are good. We're good. And if I need heat, I could even burn some of these CFR foreign affairs manuals over the 1920s all the way up, right? So there are some advantages and uh, getting locked into just if it's all audio video and, and, and they do some cyber polygon, you're cut off from the ability to usefully communicate with other people. Whereas if you still know how to read and write, that's the essential way that people can learn to meet their needs without getting into violence and beating people over the head and take their stuff because they don't know how to learn. And if we got our learning abilities back, I think there'd be a lot less conflict out there to be a lot more bridge building and it'd be harder to divide and conquer us and put us into either a civil war or a second American revolution situations, which is what's, their, what's what they're building out here in America. So it's only in that absence of literacy and, and people speaking and showing and sharing these types of things that they can do the things they're doing. And so trying to close this gap as fast as we can seems to be a good investment of our time. Yeah, I uh, I hear you. And yeah, on that very note, I mean, oh, I'm going to throw up a book here. Ugh. I weep to think that uh, the World War One conspiracy has probably been seen by a million people at this point. This book has probably been read by a percentage point of that, if the, even that much. And I weep to think about that because if you had a choice, I would say, read the book. There is so much more information in here than I can possibly cram into a, a vis audiovisual presentation that I, I don't even know how to articulate it. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say how much more information you can get from reading this book than you can from watching a documentary. But I know people would rather watch something on their screen than read a book. And I don't know how to combat that. All I'm trying to do is hopefully point people in this direction and get them motivated to read books like this so they can actually drill into the details. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we have to fight that. I think we have to do what Buckminster Fuller said. We, don't fight forces, use forces. So yeah. I create media. Well, that is you what I'm doing, media. Yeah, we create media so that we can point people toward, here's a document, you can go read it on your own time, or here's a book, you can go read it on your own time, but we're telling you why you would want to invest your time in it and put it on your schedule to do that thing and how it would enrich you. Because without that knowledge, you have no idea to why as to why to make it prioritized or actionable. So I think that the, the media we produce at the very least, it says, here's something like we're, we're pointing toward there's bigger, bigger picture. And uh, that's one of the reasons you have so many fake quotes on the Internet that float around that I was trying to sort out, like Colonel House, did he really say this? And, yeah. Or Woodrow Wilson, did he say this? Yeah, he says it over eight pages. So, of yeah. course, to tell yeah. somebody else, you got to shrink it down. But people should read those eight pages and learn about the people you can't talk about unless you uh, whisper, you know. They'll destroy yeah. you. Whisper in the corridors of power or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And uh, that was one of the things with my Century of Enslavement documentary is that's really where I started to, okay, I really got to see is it, this quote is everywhere. Is it really real? Can I actually track it down? And there are so many banking quotes that are not real. You've heard them. You've seen them on all sorts of documentaries. It was in the Money Masters and everything. Nope, that quote ain't real. That quote ain't real. That quote ain't real. It was really interesting to actually drill down to, oh, this is a real quote. I can actually quote this one. That's good. Another good real one is that uh, David Rockefeller in his memoirs where he's like, people accuse my family of doing this, yeah. this and that. And he's like, but the one that gets quoted me. everywhere is Baden Baden Bilderberg, 1991. Uh, I'd like to thank the New York Times for keeping this secret, blah, 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 whatever. It's one of those quotes that's too good to be true. And it is because it's not true. At any rate, if it is true, there is no documentable reason for believing it. And I've gone down. I've really tried to nail that down over years. and. 
there's nothing that I can pin down. I got, I got one more gem to share with you that I, I found this week because I'm reading up on Klaus Schwab. Have you heard of this guy? <laughs> well, yeah. There you go. Bell. Klaus. Speaking like Klaus now. Okay, so uh, he creates the World Economic Forum 1971 at Davos. Uh, it becomes a thing a couple years later where they start calling it Davos. But I just want to show you this 1973 manifesto that these folks got together. The Davos Manifesto. Now, before I show you that, here's uh, Otto von Habsburg. I don't know who he was in history, and he's with Klaus Schwab. So this is a guy uh, who's related, I guess, uh, to the ruling family of, of, of Europe back in the day. He's nothing to see here. Anyway, we're talking about this. Don't get distracted with that. Uh, at the third European Management Symposium, the forum, the World Economic Forum, broadened its European focus under the theme, Shaping Your Future in Europe. This Davos meeting was held under the honorary sponsorship of His Royal Highness Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. The Commission of the European Communities renewed its patronage. Two developments dis uh, distinguished this Davos meeting. First, Aurelio Perche. The Italian industrialist delivered a speech summarizing the limits to growth, a book that had been commissioned by the Club of, the Club of Rome, a global think tank that he founded and served as its first president. The study caused a sensation over after its publication in 1972 for calling into question the sustainability of global economic growth, reiterating some of the same concerns about demographics that the 18th century scholar Thomas Malthus had expressed. The authors examined several scenarios for the global economy and outlined the choices that society had to make to reconcile the economic development and environmental constraints. Sold over 12 million copies. Uh, then they had a code of ethics, and this was called the Davos Manifesto. So this is what they're getting together to do. And the people that bring you the Great Reset today, it's not the first time they all got together and uh, did anything. I just wanted to, to share, because James, you among few people on this planet, you might know who uh, Prince Bernard was and what he had to do, or, or even Aurelio Puche, who sounds like a very nice guy. What, what, is the, what are people missing in that? What aren't they and it, well, what sticks out to me is, of course, it always goes back to Malthus with these people. Always, always, always goes back to Malthus, who, um, of course, for people who don't know, uh, has ties to the British East India Company that I'm not going to be able to rattle off off the top of my head. He but taught sure at the you... British East India Company College. Right, right. right. And uh, exactly, people know him as a like a, a pastor or a father or whatever. No, he was a British East India agent, essentially. And they sold opium payroll. there, by the way, that addicted people on purpose. Exactly, yes. It's all part of the illustrious history of that organization. Uh, but yeah, he was, of course, the one who came in and out and said, oh, you know, population is increasing exponentially. Food is increasing arithmetically. If you do the math, basically, we're all going to be dead in 30 years unless we take drastic measures. And that has been clung on to now for well over 200 years and drudged up over and over and over and over. And every generation, lo and behold, they find we're all going to run out. We're going to run out of resources in 20 years unless we do these dramatic, drastic things. And of course, the limits to growth, which it mentions there, the Club of Rome document was just the late, well, at that time, the latest iteration. We've had other iterations since then, obviously, but in the 1970s, part of the um, Ehrlich-led um, revival of Malthusianism and the overpopulation scam, uh, which relates back to stories about uh, um, uh, Soylent Green. But I forget the name of the book that Soylent Green was based on. But um, what do you remember the name of that book? No, I just remember the punchline that Soylent Green is people. Yes, exactly. And of course, uh, I think Ehrlich wrote the foreword to that book or was in one of the editions as a preface or something. Um, because of course, it's all going back to that because that is their fundamental justification time and time again. Essentially, we are a herd of cattle or of mice, whatever, you know, take your pick. And the overpopulation problem, as you we started off today's uh, episode with, the overpopulation of the herd of mice or whatever it is, is going to create all these problems. So we have to find responsible ways for keeping that in line. And that's why over and over and over, this is what it goes back to. No surprise. I didn't know that about the Davos Manifesto. Zero surprise that that's in there because it's always at the heart of what they do. And it's all it, it was at the heart of Gates. Of course, what is his overriding concern? What is the thing that he keeps him up at night? The human population. And he shows in his little videos, he shows the curve. Look, look at the way human population is going. We need to do something to flatten the curve. 
And uh, that's what these people obsess about. And you are the target of it. Whoever is listening to my voice right now, you are the target of these people. They hate your existence on this planet. You are cluttering up the planet that they want to live on. And that is every single time. That's what it goes back to with these people. It's not like there's not solutions or countering information on that either, because Buckminster Fuller wrote several times on this in Grunch of Giants, and there's a couple other, and he shows Malthus was wrong. Here's why. And as human population grows, inevitably, we are getting more and more efficient with our use of resources and all these things, and there's no problem, and the earth can sustain, I think he said, 20 or 30 billion people without problem, but they choose to ignore that information. They choose to hide it away, which is why you got to read the books, you know? And I could lay my hands on that Bucky book, but you know, you get the point. There's stuff we got to read that wasn't pointed out and it wasn't assigned as homework. So we have to kind of discover it and assign it to ourselves. Yes. And uh, I will always throw in the reference to Julian Simon, who was, I think, the best critic of this uh, mentality and uh, fought against the Ehrlichs of the world and uh, pointed out that the greatest human resource is our brains. And our ingenuity, the next genius that comes along that invents something that will increase the food supply a million times or will do some other incredible thing that will uh, once again expand the pie. It's uh, with these Malthusian eugenicists. It's always it's here's the pie and this is all we have. And every single person is trying to eat from this pie. So you're just a useless eater. We have to get rid of the useless eaters. And people start to internalize that and believe it. And uh, of all the things that I cover, one of the ones that I get the most pushback from is about overpopulation. Well, the world is overcrowded, James. There are too many people. And people are thinking about it in completely the wrong way. We do not have a fixed pie. We have an expanding pie created by the ingenuity of new people coming into the uh, the human population. And the next, whatever, the next genius who's going to revolutionize everything may be born tomorrow or may be aborted tomorrow because of concerns about the overpopulation or may just get a vaccine that uh, ends up lowering their IQ to the point where they're not the next genius. And that's to me is, I cannot express how much I detest that attitude that we have to uh, we have to attack the humans and keep them in line and kill the population as opposed to letting them flourish, which is the uh, the other side of this. It's about flourishing rather than, oh, no, we're going to overpopulate. No, we can expand the pie. It is not a fixed pie. I think that's a great point. And I think that leaves it open for optimism uh, and development and creativity and ingenuity and inventiveness and all the things that come from learning. And once you stop assuming that you know everything because you went to school or watched the TV, I think that's the spark of, 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 uh, of nature that needs to be reignited, that learning process. Awesome. Happy note to uh, end our conversation on question mark. <laughs> for sure. All right. Thanks for stopping by. You're welcome to hang out for the rest of the show. I know you got a busy day ahead of you, so we won't look when you leave. All right. Thank you. (laughs) 